Welcome to 1001 Radio Crime Solvers Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we want 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to be your favorite place to go to enjoy a great mix of vintage detective shows from the golden age of radio. The scripts were great, the action was hot, and even the old commercials are enjoyable. And now, another episode of 1001 Radio Crime Solvers is ready to go. Enjoy! Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This started with a wreck and went from there to double murder over 75,000 bucks worth of glitter that nobody got in the end. Because I found out just in time what was fishy about the tale of the mermaid. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Tale of the Mermaid. At 9.30, I was still in my office, tucking in the loose ends on a report. While I listened with half an ear to the fabric of city sounds rising from the street below. Fabric ripped suddenly by tires clawing concrete. The shattering crash that followed brought me to my feet. It was a traffic accident, a bad one. I ran to the window, but it had happened around the corner out of sight from my office. So I watched others run for it and remembered grimly that every 30 seconds, somewhere in the country, a thing like that happened. And one out of every 16 minutes was fatal. I wondered who had been chewed up in a chromium meat grinder this time as I listened to first the police, then the emergency ambulance, and finally, the scavenger truck cleaned the wreck off the street. After that, I went back to my report again and tried to forget about it. But an hour later, that same accident came back into my office. Mr. Marlowe. Yeah? This is Corey Riggs. Uh, yes, Miss Riggs? I'm a nurse at the Warwick Emergency Hospital. Uh-huh. About an hour ago, a man named Stanley Ott was brought in, and he's been calling for you. For me? He was badly injured in an automobile accident on Coenga on his way to your office. Wait a minute. Who did you say this was? I'm the nurse assigned to Mr. Ott at the hospital. I just got off duty, and I had to wait until I was relieved before I could call you. I see. Well, look, Miss Riggs, I'd like to help in any way I can, but it's 930... Mr. Marlowe, Mr. Ott gave me $250 and told me to call you. Yeah, I know, but And he said that... I should give you 200 and keep the 50 for myself. Oh, fine. Now I get clients by proxy. I beg your pardon? Nothing. I'll be right over, Miss Riggs. I didn't know anyone named Stanley out, and I felt a little like an ambulance chaser, but I was only 15 minutes from getting to the emergency hospital. As I walked up the ambulance ramp, a smart-looking brunette came toward me. Mr. Marlowe? I'm Corey Riggs, the nurse who called. Oh, Hello. Can I see him now? It wouldn't do any good. You see, um, he went into a coma a few minutes after I called him. Oh, too late, is that it? Let's move away from the door, shall we? Sure. You see, Mr. Marlowe, before he went into the coma, Art wasn't rational. He was raving. About what sort of thing? About you and a girl. Oh? As near as I could make out, she's supposed to meet someone tonight at 2 o'clock and collect $75,000. It's quite an assignment. Who's the girl? I don't know. All I said was something about a, a plaid coat as identification. Plaid coat, huh? Any idea what he wanted me to do? Chaperone, maybe? No, he, he kept pleading, stop her, stop her, she can't do it. 
so I'm sure that he wanted you to prevent this girl from keeping that appointment. For some reason, it seems absolutely imperative to him. Where was this 2 o'clock meeting supposed to take place? I have no idea. Oh, fine. So it boils down to this. A girl we don't know in a plaid coat is meeting someone we don't know at a place we don't know at 2 a.m. The man who wants me to prevent it is in a coma and can't talk. Can he say anything else, Miss Riggs? He just kept saying, you've got to help me, Marlowe. It's life and death. You know, we can stir up an awful hornet's nest poking our noses into 75000 bucks worth of business we know nothing about. I doubt that we can do any good anyway, because we don't have enough to go on. If he said anything else to even point uh, in the right... Marlowe. What? Oh, wait a minute. He mumbled something once about a, a Constantine. Constantine? Yes, it's some pier. What is it, a boat? I don't know. But at least it's a lead, isn't it? Mm. Anything else? Mm, no. Okay, where can I reach you? I'll be at my quarters, Crestview 5781. 5781. And keep track of Stanley Art's condition, will you? If he comes out of it, talk to him. We've only got three short hours. I'll call you, Corey. <laughs> felt a little weird as I left the hospital because I was traveling on strictly second-hand information as to what had gone on in a delirious mind. But in spite of that, there was still enough coherence in what Corey Riggs told me to make a case. My first stop was a phone booth and a call to the police, where I found out from the accident report that Stanley Out was 30 unmarried small-time lawyer and an L.A. resident with a clean police record. My next call was the harbor master's office in San Pedro. Before my time. Not the one, eh? Not the one. So I tried the Coast Guard. No fishing boat called Constantine on this coast, mister. That was followed by a check of Yacht Harbor at Long Beach, negative. And a call of the pleasure boat anchorage at Santa Monica. No Constantine registered here, sir. After that, a long, futile reconnaissance of the waterfront from one end to the other. It left me one solid hour later out at the end of a tottering, almost abandoned concession pier in Venice. Swearing in blind frustration at the black, seething ocean below. I was licked. You ain't thinking of jumping in, are you, pal? Hey, you look like you lost your best friend. I did, Buster. Me. I was sunk with a Constantine in 1870. Constantine? You know him, too, huh? Him? Yeah. You mean Constantine's a guy? Sure, pal. There's a shack there. Uh, wait till the beacon light comes around uh, again. Uh, you see? See that? Well, I'll be. <laughs> Prince Constantine Chevnov. Occultist, yeah. palmist, and medium. Personal consultant by appointment only. Yeah, but uh, that's a fake. No fool. All them guys. He owes everybody around. He, he, even at the Ziggy. Me. For one buck and something. But he's a genuine Russian prince. Hey. Hey, where are you going? Have a look. Prince Konstantin Chevnov could be my boy. He wouldn't want you nosing around here, pal. That's too bad. Does he live here? Yeah, in, in the back. He uh, runs his pitch in the front where uh, all them uh, uh, green curtains are. Uh-huh. Eh? Yeah. I suppose he always leaves his door unlocked, huh? What? 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 
Hey, hey. That's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. There'll be a light switch here someplace. Oh, yeah. Now let's see what... Oh. Holy catch. <laughs> Goodbye, mister. Goodbye. As the little wharf rat darted through the door and scampered away into the darkness... I went over to the body, face up on the cheap, gaudy carpet of the seance room. He was about 35 in a substantial gray business suit, stained red in front where the bullets had gone in. His wallet was missing. There was no other identification on him. His gray, snap-brim hat was spilled a few feet away, so I picked it up to look for initials and found instead a small file card stuck into the sweatband. Typed at the top was the heading, The Mermaid. Owner Otis Van Owen, only relative... Evelyn Van Owen, niece. Mermaid stolen November 12th, 1948. Insurance paid in full. In ink, Van Owen died August 1949. And under that in pencil, Constantine Chevno, Venice Pier, and Louis Paradise. 913 Seacrest Road, Pacific Palisades. It took 20 minutes to find 913 Seacrest. And when I stopped and got close enough of what I saw through an open window made Constantine trap I just left looked as reliable as a post office by comparison. It was a miniature Egyptian temple, exotic and dainty, sickening lushness of red velvet and yellow silk. And in the center of the room was a bloated little man, balancing a long cigarette holder in one hand, while he simpered into a honey-colored French phone in the other. I moved up quietly until I could hear him. A sentimental agreement. That is right, Evelyn. Your Uncle Otis and I were the best of friends for years. Well, thank you, child. Uh, where are you now? Oh, the servitor. Good, good. I advise you to stay there until a few minutes before two, and uh, uh, you uh, will not forget to wear a plaid coat, just to be sure I won't make a mistake. What is it, buddy? What? Side shoe. Oh, hey. uh, 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 careful now. Sudden noises like this gun going off upset, oh, Mr. Curtis. They find so interesting inside. Conversation. About the mermaid, probably. Uh-oh. Glad you dropped that one, bud, because oh, yes. I'd bump you for a nickel to say nothing to 75G. I don't talk things over with punks. I reserve it for the head man. Go do something about it. Okay, bud, I will. Go on, move. Round at the door and inside. Mr. Paradise gets some kind of kick out of stepping on big guys like you. The gopher face shoved his automatic into the small of my back and marched me inside where the air was thick with cheap incense. The bloated little king with a long cigarette holder had stepped out. But he came back fast when the gopher called him. Mr. Paradise. He stared at me from across the room and his nostrils flared for an instant. And he simpered again and sidled toward me. The gopher dug at my spine with his gun. Well, now, what is this, Rudy? Snooper, Mr. Paradise. Caught him outside, peeking in the window. Oh, it is a bad night for Snoopers. Who are you? Name's Marlowe. And uh, the business? Snooping. He knows about the mermaid, Mr. Paradise. He does, does he? How much do you know? Speak up. She's got a fishtail instead of legs. You dare to joke. Don't uh, you. Uh, just stand here and take it, big man. You asked for it. Make a move and I'll drop you. I know what you are, Marlowe, but not how much you have found out. Now tell me, because the next time I slap you, it will carry more weight than my bare hand, I promise you. You have company, Paradise. Should I get it? No, you keep this baboon under control, Rudy. I will answer the door. Prince, come in. Paradise, Paradise, what do you mean? 
How far do you think you can what go with my reputation? Do you want to get me hanged? Wife, what is the matter, Constantine? You are upset. Upset? I'm out of my mind. Oh, what a shock. And such a stupid thing for you to do. What are oh. you raving about? He found that body on his front room floor, right, Constantine? Exactly. Precisely. And what is more, I did not put it there. Of all the places in the world, why did you pick this one? Paradise, who is this? This stranger here? If you would close your mouth and open your eyes more often, Prince Constantine, you would not be the nervous wreck you are. This is Mr. Marlowe, another snooper. Oh, another one? Paradise. Paradise, listen to me. It's better if we quit. It's better if we don't try it tonight. It's out of hand. I don't like it now. We should get away and come back next year and do it. Ah, you jellyfish, there jellyfish. is nothing to worry about now. Insurance uh, investigators fine. often work yeah. in pairs. Is that not so, Marlowe? Your pitch, round man. You don't need any help from me. You are so right. Rudy and I caught the first at your place, Constantine. Nah, now we have the second one sure. here. That is all there are. The danger is over. It's over. clear sailing from yeah, now Yeah, but on. what about that cadaver you had the audacity to leave lying in my sails? Oh, room? What forgive about me, Constantine. Forgive that me, Constantine. was a necessity. Forgive I am sorry. Now, listen. Hey, Rudy. Just go on all the time? Yeah. Ain't it awful? And think of all the champagne, caviar, and bricola, stroganoff you can buy with the mermaid. I don't care. Just a bracelet. But at the same time, it is $75,000 worth of diamonds and platinum. Oh, that, uh, oh. Okay, Paradise. I trust you. Now, we go, huh? My, uh, Gnazdo. Uh, yes, Gnazdo. Uh, it is. Uh, Mr. Paradise. Uh? What should I do with the big boy here? Yeah, you're kind of leaving a loose end around, aren't you, Fatty? If I had the time, Marlowe, I would beat the arrogance out of you a little chunk at a time. Rooney. Yeah? You've got no initiative, but you do have imagination. So use it. Goodbye, Marlowe. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, it's a big break in entertainment for you and a big break in a career for some talented youngsters when Horace Heights' original youth opportunity program opens the door to fame and fortune every Sunday evening on CBS. Popular Horace Heights is host to young folks who want to break into show business. And every Sunday evening, one lucky winner does break in to his delight and your listening pleasure. Yes, for music, comedy, thrills, and all-around fun, listen to Horace Heights Sunday evenings. Another great CBS show heard over most of these same stations. Tune in, tune in this fall for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Tale of the Mermaid. Paradise hesitated at the door, snarled the suggestion that this henchman used his imagination in disposing of me, and left in lockstep with the white Russian screwball, I got the point. But even if I'd missed it entirely, one look into Brother Rudy's eyes would have done the trick. There were no pupils, just slits of lethal viciousness. Windows to his warped little mind where I could practically see the montage going on. The 
ran from ancient thumbscrews by candlelight up to a generous beating by street lamp with brass knucks. I felt a cold knot grow in the pit of my stomach as Rudy, with a cannon in his hand, pointed at my head, started toward me. And from someplace outside, I got a break. Two romantic cats. Rudy spun toward the sound. One chance to a customer, Rudy, and you miss. Killed you, my lord. Pull your head off. Not tonight, gentle soul. Give it to me. I don't want you to hurt yourself until we've had a chance to talk. That's it. Now, lie down. I knew there was some reason why I like cats, their voices. Okay, Rudy, you've had enough rest. Now, let's get back to business. Now, now wait a minute. Come on, get up. We're going to talk. Wait, hold it, please. No reason for any more rough stuff. I'll cooperate. That's better. Where did Paradise and His Highness head for? The Gnaz, though, where is it? I don't know. Come on, you said there was no reason for rough stuff, remember? Ow! Yeah, yeah, I remember. That Gnaz, though, that's something I never heard of. An unhappy coincidence, Rudy. It's one thing I'm interested in. Yeah, wait. Must be something else you want to know. Something else I could tell you that... Hey. Hey, what are you going to do? You mean you Stay can't away. tell, Rudy? That's Keep funny. Away. All it... it takes is a little imagination. Ah! With Rudy out of the way, I started through the place looking for all important answer to what was the canals, though. The 20 minutes of turning drawers and closets inside out revealed nothing more exciting than Louis Paradise's address book, First Names Only a picture of a girl named Toodles who belonged to the Roaring Twenties and by this time should have caught a death of cold. <laughs> His sister, no doubt. But no lead on the Gnazdo. So on the slim chance that my client Stanley Ott might already be back in this world and able to help, I got outside into my car and drove to the first drugstore where after checking the phone books under everything from bars to bathhouses for a Gnazdo and getting no place, I called Corey Riggs at the nurse's home. No, Marlo. Stanley Ott's still unconscious. I just talked to the night nurse on his floor. They expect him to come out of it soon. Uh, why? What happened? Well, it's too much to explain now, Corey, but that girl, the one in the plaid coat, mm-hmm. I found out that her name's Evelyn Van Owen, and she's staying at the Surf Hotel. Now, see if that much checks with Art when he comes to, will you? All right. Oh, also, there's a diamond-studded item called the Mermaid, which accounts for that 75000 he mentioned. Now, Constantine and the Pier now equal a phony Russian prince who runs a spook palace out on the old Venice Pier. Now, you got all that? Uh-huh. Good. Now, look, honey, listen real hard. Before Ott passed out, did he by any chance say the word Ganazdo? Ganazdo? Yeah. Mm, no. What does it mean? I don't know. I, I think it's the name of a place. Oh, have you uh, checked the phone book? Yeah, yeah. It's no dice, Corey. Also, I checked one Mr. Louis Paradise, who you might uh, mention. Marlo, Marlo, wait a minute. What's Hold the matter? The wire, will you? There's a girl here, one of the nurses, who's trying to tell me something. Oh. It's the Ganazdo, Marlo. Shh, wait a minute. She knows something about it here. It's, it's Rosemary. You talk to her. Hello. Hello. You want to know what Gnazdo means? Yeah. Hmm? Well, it's Russian, like Pashlamaya Gnazdo. Oh, that's, uh, well, what does it mean in English, Rosemary? Fast, please, is important. Well, that means let's go to my place. Gnazdo's the word for nest. Sort of like cozy apartment or cottage. My place, nest. You sure of that? Well, I'm positive. I was an army nurse in the war, and I spent two years in Germany after the shooting part was over. Two years, a half a block away from the Russian zone. That's close enough. Thanks a million, Rosemary. I don't mention it. Here's Corey. Oh. That do it, Marlowe? Yeah, I think so. At any rate, unless I'm way off base, it's where both the mermaid and all parties concerned are going to rendezvous at 2 a.m. That's less than a half hour from now. The prince's place on the pier... 
I want to be early, so goodbye, Corey. I'll call again when I know more. Yeah, and give my everlasting love to girlfriend Rosemary. She all is show a peach. There was still a few parts missing, the way there always are. But as I drove fast for the old Venice Pier and added as I went along, it came out something like the team of paradise and Prince Whatchamacallit, ready, willing, and able to pay 75 grand for a piece of jewelry that... One Evelyn Van Owen now owns a mermaid, which according to the data I'd found on the insurance man's body, had once been stolen from Evelyn's late uncle. But I left it there when my rearview mirror said a long gray sedan that had been tagging me discreetly for the last three blocks, now being indelicate about it and closing fast. The driver was old pal Rudy, and as he came abreast, he headed for me. You're okay. You're okay, Mac. Don't you worry about a thing. We'll have you out of there in a minute. Hey, can't you knock up that horn? I knock out the horn. What do you think we're trying to do? It ain't so easy to get my hand past the squeezed hood. You know? Oh. Oh. Well, that's better. Hey. Hey, Cabby, what'd I hit? Well, in order of our appearance, Ooh. Mac, your car into a telephone pole, and then you into your dashboard. Oh, yeah, you're sure lucky you bounced off the car first, Mr. Slowed you down plenty. Oh, hey, here comes the ambulance. Yeah. Look at the roll. Not for me. I'm all right. Hey, come on, Cabby, help me out of this, will you? Sure, sure, that's what we're trying to do, but uh, don't you worry, the ambulance ain't for you. But a guy that sideswiped you and then tried to get away. I seen what happened, and I went after him in my cab. <laughs> he turned into a dead end, no less, trying to shake me. Ooh, is he a mess. But I guess he'll live all right. Hey, what's he got against you, anyhow, Mac? Just my life. Listen, your cab's still all right? Sure, there's some place you gotta go. There is. The old Venice Concessions Pier, my friend, and the sooner the better. Come on. Maybe my head against the dashboard was exactly what I needed. Because right then and there, the method of Rudy's handiwork made me think of an angle that I'd neglected almost completely. My unconscious client had not wanted me to get the mermaid or the 75,000 bucks, but to stop Evelyn from keeping her rendezvous, which at this point I figured could mean but one thing. It was exactly 2 o'clock when the cab slammed to a stop near the pier. And I piled out and ran onto the empty, fog-dampened flanking that led to Prince Constantine's shack. Nothing but mist moved over the pier. No unusual sound broke the pattern of waterfront noises. But I thought momentarily that I was still in time to prevent what Stanley out somehow knew was going to happen. That Louis Paradise and his eccentric sidekick intended to get the mermaid from Evelyn. But pay off in only one... One way. ran to the rear of the shack on stilts and got close to the half-open door where I could see and hear and found out just what I'd expected. In the storeroom spread out and very still on the oil-soaked planks that were a makeshift floor with the lifeless form of a girl who, according to the plaid coat she wore, was the late Evelyn Van Owen. And kneeling close to her gun in one hand, the sparkling mermaid in the other, was her executioner, Louis Paradise. Next to him is number one boy, Prince Constantine Chevnov. Not very happy. A fool, a fool to shoot her was stupid. Yes. Seventy-five grand, stupid. Uh, or would you have preferred that I pay Miss Van Owen in cash? 
I had to kill her. Yes, 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 Paradise, but the gun, so much noise, we can't afford to attract attention. There's two corpses on hand, I should say not, uh, Percy. Don't try it, Louis. The mermaid. The space between the boards. The mermaid. Oh. It's in the water, Chevnov. Shame. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's a shame. We did so much. Worked so hard. Yeah. Killed so often. And a run for it, Your Highness? Run? No. No, Paradise is dead there. Without Paradise, I... I am not so brave. I will do as you say. Keep quiet. Don't make a sound, Chef. No, we got company. Quiet! Quiet. Pardon me. Can you please tell me where Louis Paradise can be... That's Louis Paradise there. Who are you? Evelyn Van Owen. What? Van Owen? The woman who was supposed to sell the mermaid to paradise? That's right. But on my way over here, just after I left my hotel, somebody struck me, knocked me out. Took my my coat there and and my purse and ran. Your purse with the mermaid, no doubt. Yes. And that, Miss Van Owen, makes this angle shooter here. Yeah. The very dead nurse, Corey Riggs. Let's get out of here. Well, there's nothing to worry about, Miss Van Owen. Stanley's going to be all right. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> Why is it women always cry when they're so happy? I don't know, but it's effective. Well... I'll run along now. Goodbye. Bye, Doctor. You know, Mr. Marlowe, when I was in Stanley's room with the doctor, Stan said he didn't lose control of his car at all when he had that accident in front of your place. He was run off the road by... By a gray sedan, I know, because I had the same treatment. One of Louis Paradise's henchmen, Rudy. Where's your car, honey? I'll walk you out. Just outside the front door. Mm -hmm. Tell me, did I tell you why Rudy roughed him up? Yes. In a way. You see, I told Stanley about the deal with the mermaid, and he thought it all sounded a little phony. Can't understand why. He's a lawyer, you know. A legal type mind. Uh, He said meeting anyone at two in the morning was ridiculous, so he investigated as much as he could because he was worried about me. We're engaged, you know. No, I never would have guessed. And, And he found out that Mr. Paradise was a fence. And Stan said that probably he never intended to give me the $75,000 for the mermaid at all. That they, they intended to kill me. Mm, here we are. Tell me, why did you get in touch with Paradise in the first place? I was just following Uncle Otis's instructions. Mm-hmm. He gave me the mermaid when he was dying. And he told me if I wanted money to sell it only to a Mr. Paradise, but, but not to mention it to anyone. Your uncle faked a robbery, collected the insurance money, and then let you sell the mermaid to a fence, huh? It's lucky for you that Nurse Corey Riggs was clever. She put together just enough of Otis's gibberish to know that there was something good to be had and then got me to unravel it for her. She got killed taking my place. When she tried to collect your 75,000 bucks. Yeah. Oh, here's my car. Well, Evelyn, for a little while you were a rich woman. Now it's all gone. How do you feel? Well, I'm alive and in love. Yes, well, that answers my question. Good night, baby, and good luck.
When I left the hospital, I wandered back to the old Venice Pier in Prince Constantine's Gnazdo. It was five in the morning, and the police had finished cleaning the place up. But the word had gotten out. A crowd had gathered. They always do. Curious, restless, sordid crowd, equipped with everything from grappling hooks to homemade diving helmets, all climbing over each other for a chance to fish for the mermaid. She would brought death to three people, injury to two others in the course of one night. And suppose they found her. What then? A lot of glittering pieces of white coal set in a metal frame we call precious. <laughs> Look at the suckers grab. That's all, Marlowe. Home and to bed. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Rita Lynn, John Daner, Michael Ann Barrett, Wilms Herbert, Junius Matthews, Herb Bygren, and Mark Lauren. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a terrified woman lost in a maze of memories she couldn't explain. And waiting for her outside an open window was death. Another show has joined the CBS Sunday Night Parade. It's the Contented Hour, starring Buddy Clark and featuring the finest in popular and semi-classical music. It comes to you on most of these CBS stations for the first time tomorrow night, making its debut on CBS the same night as Red Skelton, and Edgar Bergen and Charles McCarthy. Yes, this fall, you hear them all on CBS. This is Paul Masterson speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This started with a terrified woman lost in a maze of memories she couldn't explain. And waiting for her outside an open window was death. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. with our star, Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Open Window. California's a year-round kind of place, where each day blends into the next with a sort of sunny indifference. But the one just passed had been a little special. It was the cool, crisp autumn weather that reminded you of the east, where autumn meant kicking your way through knee-deep drifts of brown and yellow leaves, along a rutted country road that hinted of adventure at every turn. Yeah, that's the kind of a day it had been. 
But now, at a little past eight, as I stood at the window of my third-floor apartment and stared out over enough improved Los Angeles real estate to house maybe half a million people that tonight I wanted no part of, because the world was out there minding everybody else's business, while I was in here minding my own. In here, everything was in order and cozy. I could read if I want to, write a letter if I want to, or just relax with... Oh, no. Your name Philip Marlowe? Yeah, why? Because I have that name and this address written here on this card. I think I was supposed to see you. Do you know me? Well, no, frankly, I don't. What were you supposed to see me about? Who are you, Mr. Marlowe? I mean, what sort of business? I'm a private detective. Private detective? Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not that bad a racket. <laughs> oh, now, look. Why don't you come in and we'll talk this over, huh? Come on. Sit down, won't you? You look like a new you can use a drink. Do you want one? Oh, no, thank you. I just need to rest a moment. Oh. I've been walking for hours. Well, now, tell me, what is it? A man, I think. Someone's been following me. I was followed here, I'm sure. I, I don't know why. Really? This is Los Angeles, California, isn't it? Yeah. I keep thinking... That is, I feel as though it should be Vancouver, British Columbia. Oh, I don't know how I got here or why I want to see you, but I've walked until I'm nearly exhausted, and I, I found that I'd written your name and address on this card here, so I, I decided to come and try to find out. Well, now tell me, do you know who you are? No, I don't know who I am. Uh -huh. This man you're afraid of, do you know him? No. But I believe he knew me. He, he reminded me of Vancouver, and that frightened me. To remember, I saw him a year ago. Maybe it was just the day before yesterday. <laughs> See how crazy that sounds. But I can't help it. I can't remember. Here, here, I take can't. it easy. Now you better lie down on the divan. That's it. Come on. At a girl. Look, I think we ought to call a hospital and see it. <laughs> Stay where you are. It's company in the hall. Maybe for us. Now just take it easy. Hey, hey, you hold it. Hold it up there. Oh, great. Mr. I couldn't see. Don't let it bother you now, honey. It's probably just one of my clumsy neighbors. He never watches where he's going. You know, the other no, night... stop, please. All right. Whoever was out there was looking for me. I know he was. I know it. Now, look, honey. Isn't there something you can tell me? Don't you remember anything? No, I don't know. Here, look in my purse. There are things in it I don't understand. Maybe there'll be some help. Address on a piece of brown paper. 8400 North Virgil, Tompkins. Does that mean anything to you? No. Mm. A little snapshot album with one of the pictures missing. Wait a minute. I remember now. That was stolen. Good. But I don't remember what the picture was. Oh, please, please try to find out who I am and why I'm being followed. Please try to find out why I'm afraid. All right, baby. Now, you stay here till I get back, huh? I won't bother anything. I'll wait right here. Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I 
figured what she needed most was rest, and she was getting that fast, so I dropped the items from a purse into my pocket, snapped the lock on my apartment door, and left. My first stop was the phone downstairs in the lobby, where I found out that the missing persons bureau had no one on file answering her description. My next stop was 8400 North Virgil. A half hour later, I found it. A crumbling stucco rooming house in a welter of knobby hills, huddled with other ramshackle houses that years ago had abandoned any hope of beauty. In the face of the leaky, bobbing oil wells that had invaded the neighborhood like a horde of huge, greasy grasshoppers. I walked past one of the creaking monsters in the front yard, then down a grimy hall, with door marked manager, Jacob Philpotts, below which some neighborhood wag had penciled stinks. It wasn't funny. But neither was Jake Philpotts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is this? Speak up, Sporty. I'm very busy killing a soldier. What's on your mind besides your hat? <laughs> okay, comic. I want to see Tompkins. Oh, you want to see Tompkins? That's what I said. Well, you're too late, Sporty. He's gone. Blue. Flew the coop. Took the 500 berries and shoved off two hours ago. For where? Well, for his hometown, I guess. Vancouver. It's way up in Canada. Which is a long walk, Sporty, so you better get started by... Wait a minute, Jake. Huh? Where did Tompkins get the 500? Where did he get... Well, some classy guy gave it to him. Classy guy? Why? Well, to get out of town and stay out. So he does. Uh-huh. But first he pays back all his back rent and buys me a bottle besides. <laughs> Wasn't that sweet of him? That stuff over there? Yeah. Must have hated you. Who was the classy guy? Why do you want Tompkins out of town? Why do you want Tompkins out of town? Well, how, how do I know? What am I, an encyclopedia? Hey, look, Nosey, my whiskey's getting cold, so why don't you run along? I want to know who the I guy was, and I want it now. Oh, so you're going to start pushing, huh? So you want to fight, huh? Okay, <laughs> put him up. Come on. Take it easy, Buster. Take it easy. You'll beat yourself there to death. Is. Now, let's negotiate. Huh? Prop up against the wall, and I'll talk to you. What about a price for another bottle of that stuff? I wouldn't like to see another bottle. That's what I said. Oh, well, that's, that's different. That's real nice of you, Sporty. Not really, kid. I'm trying to poison you. Now, what was Tompkins' record? Oh, uh, gardener, carpenter, handyman. Nothing much. Uh, what else? Who was the classy guy that bought him off? I said, uh, let's see. I uh, had his name right on the tip of my tongue a minute ago. A red-headed, flashy dresser. Had a sort of a... Oh! Oh! Palmer, Palmer. Yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Palmer. Very good. Now, one more. Where can I find him? Well, he said something about running uh, uh, the pearls. Uh, you get it? Yeah, it's a dive on Highland. Thanks, Phil Potts. Oh, but don't thank me, Sporty. You bought it, remember? This brand comes to seven fifty with tax. Don't kid an old kid or Jake. You can squeeze that junk out of sour potatoes. Here's sour thin. potatoes! And have a happy hangover. <laughs> Outside, the smell of the oil well as I passed it was welcome by comparison to Jake, which made it tough to reconcile anything I'd seen at 8400 North Virgil with the girl asleep on the divan in my apartment. As I drove back to Hollywood, then down Highland Avenue, the night was still strangely quiet. Everything seemed to come in whispers. Even the hunch I had that the vanishing Mr. Tompkins had sold out dirt cheap to the boss of the pearls. Near 3rd Street, I spotted the place, parked a ways beyond it, and walked back. It was one of those dumps that dealt in bad bar whiskey. Second-rate bop and a lot of darkness. I shook off a brace of lost weekenders on my way through, made it up the stairs to the offices where a block of orange light on the floor and a two-tone conversation told me to stop, look, and listen. Time, baby. Alan, as they say in Missouri. I have to show you, huh? Uh-huh. All right, no, my will. You're not easy to get over. I still love you and I've missed you. 
So when you dropped me for your stuffy broker friend, I did a little checking up, and I found out plenty. About Cooper? About Cooper Gerard. I don't believe you. Oh, but you should, honey. You see, Norma, it's not about him specifically, but about a woman. A woman who's all wrong, who spells trouble this deep, and I can prove it. I went to work on it tonight, and things are going to be different from now on. Hey, I'm buddy, shh. Buddy, I wanted you get to get out of here. Get out of here. Go on. Wait a minute. All I want to know is... I said beat it, and I meant... Never mind, Buster. It doesn't matter anymore. My presence is now known. Come on in, Junior. You can hear better inside. I doubt it. I'll inhibit the performers. Thanks anyway. Buddy, all I want to know is... Try the end of the hall, then left. It's usually there. Okay, thanks. That's all I want to know. Hello. Hello. What do you want, mister? Make it snappy. Okay. Why'd you pay Tompkins to leave town tonight? Tompkins... Who are you? Marlowe, going to answer the question formally? Why, certainly. I didn't pay him to leave town. I paid him for some work, carpenter work. Why? What's the matter, Alan? Feel the whip handle slipping? Not a bit, baby. Look, why don't you run along now? I'll call you later. Oh, uh, here's your cigarette case. My cigarette case? Yeah. Take it with you. We'll get in touch later. Okay, Alan. Good night, Marlowe. Good night, Miss, uh... uh... A out. Not that it'll do you any good, Junior. <laughs> That's a cute kid. Smart, too, I'll All bet, right, man. all right. Why are you interested in Tompkins? Because a certain lady's interested. And a lady's name? None of your business. Okay. Go on. Miss Key. What door does it fit, Pomley? How should I know? Have you got anything else? Isn't that enough? Not enough to worry about, Marlowe. So I suggest that you leave. And in case you have any doubts, this thing goes off awful easy. I see your point. Yeah. And I'd just as soon shoot as not, so start down those stairs and don't look back. I bust for a couple of the boys. They'll be at the bottom to help you out the front door. Oh, and Marlo, take some advice. I don't like your type, so don't come back. The boys escorted me politely as far as the sidewalk and gave me a send-off that piled me into the gutter. It was my own fault for letting Pomley get the drop on me, but he was farther ahead of me than I figured. In fact, I was lucky all I got was the bounce. I limped back to my car, got in and started home, but something about the trio of Norma Lacasso, Pomley, and a broker named Gerard was off-center. And Gerard's connections were too strong to pass up. So I decided to let the pale woman asleep in my apartment go right on sleeping while I stopped at a phone booth. Found only one Cooper Gerard listed, and he had 8112 North Orange Drive. It was a lonely house up in the Hollywood Hills. I tried the bell and got no answer. But I knew he was there. I slipped the enigmatic key out of my pocket and listened to the music coming from inside. I stuck it in the lock and turned, just as the footsteps inside, so I pulled it out fast and let the party on the other side of the door do the honors. What is it? You're Mr. Gerard? Yes, I'm Cooper Gerard. What is it? I'd like to come in and talk to you. My name's Marlowe. I'm a private detective. I've got a key that fits your front door, plus a little photo album full of a girl. Here. Why, that's Margaret's album and her key. You, you found her. Where is she? What's happened to her? She's safe. Come in the upper room. Right. So her name's Margaret, huh? Margaret what? Veezy. Margaret Veezy. But where is she? I've been frantic. I just called the police. She left the house this morning and didn't come back. It's late now, and in her condition, I'm afraid that What something... is Margaret's condition, Mr. Gerard? She was injured in an auto accident a year ago last July, up near Vancouver. It affected her mind. Oh, but please, where is she? Just I must a minute. Get... There are some questions that I'd like answered first. Exactly what is Margaret Veezy to you? Till July 9th, 1948, when that horrible accident happened, nothing. Merely a hitchhiker. My wife and I were motoring back from a vacation in Canada. 
picked Miss Vesey up on the road. In the accident, Grace, my wife, was killed. Miss Vesey seriously injured. All I knew about her was that she was alone in the world, so there was no one to help her. Well, since I was driving the car, I assumed that responsibility. It was the least I could do. I stayed with her in Vancouver until she'd partially recovered and then brought her here. She's been with me ever since. Now, will you please take me to her? But the story doesn't end there. What do you mean? Margaret Vesey's in trouble and she's scared. What do you know about a man named Tompkins, for instance? Why, nothing. I don't know any Tompkins. You do know a Norma Lacasso, don't you? Norma? Of course, Miss Lacasso and I are quite good friends. Mm-hmm. What about Alan Parmalee? Heard of him. He runs a nightclub, I believe. That's but right. It's... Now tell me, can you tell me why a third picture is missing in the album? What's that? Let me see. This is very strange. Margaret cherishes every picture in this album. She thinks that one was stolen. Any idea what the picture was? No. I can't imagine why it was stolen. All the pictures were simple, harmless snapshots. I can't remember the one that's missing, but... Marla, what does all this mean? What's it all about? Well, as near as I can tell, there's some kind of nasty shakedown brewing. I don't know how or why, but Alan Pomley's behind it, and Margaret Vesey's caught in the middle, so it involves you, too. Come on, let's go get her. She's asleep in my place. You didn't leave her alone. Yes, I did. You shouldn't have done that. Couldn't you tell from her mental state that she isn't responsible? For two days, she's been moody. She's been talking about suicide. She might... Marlowe, anything's it. happened. Come on, Gerard, let's travel. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, by the time you've listened to Johnny Dollar, Philip Marlowe, Gangbusters, and Escape in the CBS All-Star Saturday Night lineup, you may be for some sleuthing of your own. So try it with Sing It Again and The Phantom Voice. Don't always let the other guy or gal solve the mystery. Try it yourself with Sing It Again on most of these same CBS stations every Saturday night. Tune in, tune in this fall for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Open Window. It took ten minutes to get from Gerard's house to my place. I knew because he reminded me of each one as it passed. But when we turned on to Franklin, where we could see my apartment house, the word hurry stuck in his throat. An ambulance was pulling away from a tight knot of people standing on the concrete driveway beside the building. And three floors above them, glowing like a single ugly, unblinking eye, was the window of my own apartment wide open. Even before I could stop the car, Gerard was out and running toward the crowd. Who was in that ambulance? A woman, mister. It was terrible. She fell out of that open window up there. Did you see it? No, nobody saw it happen. Yeah, it's bad, brother. They say she'd been laying here on the concrete for at least a half hour before anybody got to her. It's been so quiet around here tonight. I'm surprised Wait, tell me, was she... Was she dead? Just about. They don't give her a chance. Come on, Gerard. Let's go upstairs. The police are up there now. They're trying to find out... say the woman came here to your apartment, Mr. Marlowe, and asked you for help. Is that right? That's right, officer. She was frightened and exhausted. When I left, she was asleep on the divan there. Was the door locked, Marlowe? Yeah, it's got a night light, Gerard. I snapped it myself. And you left her alone, right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, take a look around, will you? See if you can find anything to indicate that an outsider came in while you were gone. What makes you think there was an outsider here? 
Because I don't think she fell. Oh, Margaret was in mental turmoil, officer. She's been despondent. It's possible that she jumped. Yeah? How many people have you heard of that jumped out of a window backwards, mister? I think she was pushed. Pushed? Yeah. Come here, both of you. I want to show you something. He went over to the window and pointed at five scratches where fingernails had clawed the paint off the casing. The one that had to be made by her thumb was the lowest. It was true. She'd gone out backwards. As the officer explained that to Gerard, I stared down at the dwindling knot of people three stories below. Then up again at the five jagged scars ripped deep by a terrified woman's nails. Stared at them until they screamed at me as a sick mind must have screamed when she fell. Now, Mr. Marlowe, what about this cigarette stub with lipstick on it? Cigarette stub... Hey, that's exactly what I'd like to know. Gerard, where does Norma live? Why, in the Hillcrest Apartments on Sunset, but surely... Never mind what I think. You go to the hospital and find out about Margaret. I'm going to pay a call on Norma LaCasso right now. She's a type to be jealous enough to... Marlowe, listen, you're making a mistake. That cigarette stub must be Margaret's because Norma doesn't smoke. What? Norma doesn't smoke? What about the cigarette case? Hey, Buster, you better check with Lieutenant Matthews at Homicide. I'll see you later. Hey, hey, come back here, Marlowe. The Hillcrest Apartments fit Norma LaCasso to a T. It was sleek, soft tones of burnished wood, streamlined in glass, and just enough chrome around for glitter. And when she answered a door in glossy green, lounging pajamas edged in gold, smiled and tossed a head of hair that was almost burgundy back from her face, I knew what Alan Palmley meant. Loving Norma LaCasso would be hard to get over. Hello, Junior. Don't tell me you're joining the league, too. It's fast, you know. Skip it, baby. I'm coming in. Do you mind? No. Did they do any good? Mm-mm. Get comfortable. I'll mix you a drink or something. Hey, Normie, you know Margaret Vesey, don't you? That peculiar girl that stays at Gerard's place? Yeah, I met her once. A little while ago, she dropped three floors from an open window to a slab of concrete. Oh. Lay there over 30 minutes before she was found. Oh, Marlo, that's dreadful. I'm sorry. Don't look at me like that. I, I mean it. I like Margaret. So do I. Look more, she didn't fall. She was pushed. Oh. Got a cigarette? Sure. Here. Catch. Thanks. Oh, just one cigarette toss like that? The man is a lousy. You're supposed to pass the case and let the guest help himself. Marlo, you're hurting me. I'm going to keep right on twisting until that solid gold cigarette case drops. That's what I adore about men. They're fools. That's better. Gorilla. All right, to help yourself, the picture's there under the bottom layer of cigarettes. But why it's important to be on me. It's important to Palmley, baby. Had you smuggled out of his office so I couldn't find it. Oh. Margaret and Gerard at some little amusement park, huh? Mm-hmm. Near Vancouver, probably. Told me how I used to take her out while she was recovering from that accident. So what? Even the autographs ought to make no sense to me. Yeah, this one's hers. Yeah, we had fun this day. This must be his, even the hottest day in Vancouver's history. Now, that's it, Muscles, all of it. Now, will you apologize for these wealth on my arm? I don't get it. Whole deal screwy. The only way it would make any sense is if... Norma, where's your phone book? Over there, under the phone. Mm-hmm. Why? What have you got, Marlowe? Just an idea so far. Stick around. That's the U.S. government. War assets, voices, weather bureau. Climatological records, yeah. Mutual, six, four, four, two, one. Weather bureau records. Hello, listen, can you tell me what the hottest day on record in Vancouver has been? I mean, the date. You have that information? British Columbia? Yeah. Yes, we've got it here, I'm pretty sure. Just a minute. What's that supposed to prove, Marlowe? I'm not sure yet. Yes, we've got it. it uh, hello? Yeah, I'm here. Go ahead. The book says the hottest day up there was on July 3, 1948, when the July temperature reached 3. 92 degrees. Some heat record, huh? 
It's a nice place, Vancouver. I was up yeah. there one year. Yeah, thanks, friend. The Weather Bureau just lifted a cloud from a lady's mind. I hope you did it in time. So long. You found out something big, didn't you? No works. Well, uh, aren't you going to pull a gun? They always do about here. Not me. I've got concealed weapons. You've also got dollar bills in your bloodstream instead of corpuscles. Mm. But you're smart, baby, so take a tip. Stick close to home. Don't even use the phone. You're a real nice, shiny item. I'd like to keep you that way. Thanks. I'm going to take your word, Junior. But what does it mean? Trouble. Just as soon as I can stir it up. Good night. From Norma's and the time that had gone by, I figured my best bet was Gerard's place, but I was wrong. It was deserted, so I took the next best, which was Alan Pomley's The Pearls. It was well after 2 o'clock when I got there, and the club was closed, but the lights were on, the offices upstairs. I parked, slipped around to the back, and up a flight of iron stairs to a metal door at the top. I pressed my weight against it and very gently turned the knob, and tugged softly, and it swung open without a sound. Voices in the same square of orange light on the floor said that Pomley's office was open again. So I eased my gun into my hand and moved until I could see him. A pair of jackals coming to terms over Since the carcass of a Since I know your little form. secret, Mr. Gerard, the proposition I'm offering you is perfectly fair. What is it? First, that you stop seeing Norma Lacasso. And I mean stop. Go on. Second, that you deliver $5,000 here to me by the end of the week. You must have got a lot of insurance on your wife, Gerard. Double indemnity, too. Am I asking too much? Blackmail leaves me no alternative. You're so right. How did you find out that she's not Margaret V.C.? Ha, <laughs> ha, a beautiful break. When you started seeing Miss Lacasso, I began checking up on you. And two days ago, that checking up led me to the strange woman you called Margaret V.C. and a character named Tompkins. Ever hear of him? No. An itinerant gardener was looking for work at your place. Also, Gerard, an itinerant gardener who knew your Margaret Vesey, who knew her as someone named Grace. And Grace Gerard, lest we forget, was your wife. When he called her Grace, it scared her. She couldn't do it, but I could. So I see. Where is this Tompkins now, Parmley? Oh, don't worry about him. I sent him away. He'll keep his mouth shut. He used to be a gardener on the wealthy side of Vancouver where your wife lived. Small world, eh? A very small world. Look up. Now, now, wait a minute, Gerard. I'm going to kill you, Parley. I knew something like this would happen someday. My wife was getting her memory back. She was beginning to remember things, to realize that she wasn't really Margaret Vesey at all, that Margaret Vesey had died in the accident. And tonight, I pushed her out of an open window. Doctors practically assure me that she'll be dead by morning. She won't be missed, and neither will you, I'm sure. Next one's for your belly, Gerard, if you move one inch. You, Pomley, come around here. Wait me at desk. Come on. This time I'm glad to see you, Marlowe. You're the lesser of two evils. That's great. Well, it was a sweet story, fellas. Between you, you left out only one thing, the picture. You got it from the little album because you needed some tangible proof, didn't you, Pomley? And it cinched the deal because the accident happened on the 9th of July. But Gerard here had his picture taken with a supposed hitchhiker on Vancouver's hottest day, which was July 3rd, six days before he claims to have met the girl. Picture? How'd you manage the master stroke, Gerard, the switch in identities in the first place? Come on, talk! What are you... It was a mistake. Both Miss Beasley and my wife were in the car at the time of the accident. The car burned. Then, somehow or other, later at the hospital, Margaret Beasley, who died, was identified as my wife, Grace. And since her memory was gone, you made the switch complete and called your wife Margaret Beasley and left it like that. You know, Gerard, I hope you make a break for it. Just once, before we get to headquarters. Let's go. You too, Pomley, move. All right, but you'll have a hard time sticking me, Snoop. I haven't done anything. Oh, yes, you have. Attempted extortion, and as of right now, you just incited a rat. Dr. Gray, to receiving ward, please. 
It's Dr. Gray. He's in here, Mr. Marlowe. Sure it's all right if I see her now, Doctor? After what you've just told me, I think it's a good idea. Her condition's changed somewhat. She's responded better than I expected, but she can use some fighting spirits and spunk. Maybe you can give her that. We can't. I hope so. And don't stay too long, that's all. Hello, Grace. I'm Philip Marlowe, remember me? What? Yes, I, I think I do, Mr. Marlowe. Glad to see you. Oh, good. I, I just stopped by to tell you that I have all the answers to those troublesome questions in your mind. You don't have to be afraid of them anymore. We have nothing to worry about now except getting well. Thank you. Oh, easy back there. I, I can't remember where I've been. Well, you've been away, Grace, for a long time. But now you'll be going home soon to your friends. Believe that. I'll run along now and come back tomorrow when you're feeling better. We'll have a long talk then. Wait. Who is Margaret Vesey? The girl you knew once, briefly. And what I'll never forget. I went to sleep one night on my divan. I don't remember. You will. Don't think about it now. Just think about home in Vancouver. You'll be there soon, I promise. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It's lovely in Vancouver. Yeah. That's what the weatherman says. Good night, my dear. When I finally got home, the air in my apartment was thick. Full of stagnant fear and stale tobacco smoke. So I went over the window to open it up. There I stopped because I remembered standing at that same window earlier that evening. Standing there thinking how happy I was that the world was out there. And how happy I was to be inside, looking out. And then I saw again the five deep scratches on the casing. Inside looking out, huh? There was a guy once, a long time ago, who said something like, no man is an island entire of itself. Yeah, about 300 years ago he said that. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. Yeah, sure. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Betty Lou Gerson, Ed Begley, Lillian Bioff, Paul Dubov, Jay Duvello, and Harry Bartell. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time it was a wrestler on the skids, a quick change artist in an alley, and a girl with an eye for angles. All met destruction because a hundred thousand easy bucks caught him in a stranglehold, which none of them wanted to break. Next time you're in the woods, make sure that cigarette butt, that match, or that campfire is completely out. 
Only you can prevent forest fires. This is Paul Masterson speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That wraps it up for tonight's show at 1001 Radio Grime Solvers. We really enjoy good reviews, so when you have a chance, say something nice about a selection of shows, or maybe suggest some to us. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.